What can we learn about God's grace to the slow of heart to believe? What can we learn about God's grace to the slow of heart to believe? That's the question for this morning. We come this morning to one of the great stories in the Bible, the story of the road to Emmaus, a walk of some seven miles with two characters and then a third who joins them. Jesus says at one point in his ministry, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And this story... And this story is above, about one thing above all things, which is this. It's about a moment of real insight where you suddenly see something important you have never seen before. It's a moment of real insight where you suddenly see something important that you've never seen before. You know how this works already. Good children's stories and good novels are full of this stuff. Think of something as basic as the princess and the frog. You find out because you have an omniscient narrator that actually the frog is a prince, but the princess doesn't know that. And I was interested, by the way, this week to find out that the earliest versions in Grimm, at the end of the story, she actually takes the frog and throws it against a wall <laughs> instead of kisses it. But our, our modern versions have kind of calmed that down. But the, but the point is that, the point is when the, when the frog becomes a prince, it not simply is a moment of real transformation and illumination, but it casts a light back over the entire story in such a way that the whole story and every detail in the story now looks different in retrospect. Let me give you another example, a quite famous one from the 20th century. Thomas Merton was one of the great spiritual writers of the last hundred years, a Trappist monk. And if you go to Louisville, even to this day, you can find a plaque at the corner of 4th and Walnut where something happened to him. It's such a famous incident that there's actually a plaque there to commemorate it. It was one of the transforming moments of his life. He describes what happened in his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Listen to this and think. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people that they were mine and I was theirs, that we could not be alien from one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation into a special world. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I thought, I have the immense joy of being a man, a member of the race in which God himself became incarnate, as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could recognize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all suddenly walking around shining like the sun. Then it was as if suddenly I saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen, only believed and understood 
by a peculiar gift. Boom. That's a big deal. He sees a vision of humanity, and it is a vision he's never seen before, and it transforms not simply that moment, but the entire rest of his life. He's never the same again. And that's what happens in this story. So here's the question, brothers and sisters. How? How does it happen? Well, I appreciate you asking. If you'd be, if you'd be kind enough to take out your text, we're going to look in some detail at this phantasmagorical story, which I utterly love. I sometimes think when I read this story of Stanley Park, for those of you who know about cities, you may know that some of the great cities in the world have fantastic parks as one of their central features. If you go to New York City, Sir Patrick Olmsted's Central Park is a cru crucial feature. It transforms the landscape of New York. Vancouver, where I lived for two years, has Stanley Park, which is right outside of the downtown. And, and, and Vancouver is a whole other story for another time. It's the most beautiful city in North America. You have mountains, you have the ocean, you have this pristine, incredibly Canadian golden clear city with hanging flower pots at the edge of every corner and right next to the downtown there's this giant park and you can actually there's a circular walkway around the park and you can go around it in about six or seven hours and I often think of the times in my life where I walked around Stanley Park just once and all the things that you would talk about and listen and understand and learn if you had just one conversation in one walk at that length of time you all with me that's what's going on in this story so look at your text and let's think about this magnificent scene together. I want to answer my question in three parts. First of all, it comes graciously and gradually. It comes graciously and gradually. This story works the same way that the princess and the frog works. You are led in by the omniscient narrator to something that the characters in the story themselves don't know, which is the person they're talking to is Jesus. And so when the story begins, it has a comic element. And this is one of the great things about the Bible. It's not simply full of great stories. It's hilarious all over the place. And this is a hilarious story. These two are two not of the 12, but probably of the 70. They know a lot about Jesus. They've done a lot of ministry. They've been around a lot. They've been through a lot. We're through Good Friday. We're through Holy Saturday. We're all the way to Sunday. And they're taking a walk, and they're leaving Jerusalem. And he comes up, and he says, Oh, you guys are having a conversation. What are you talking about? And they look at him and basically say, What, what, what planet are you from? Did you just crawl out from under a walk? What do you mean, what are we talking about? It's on the 6 o'clock news. It's on the front page of the paper. We're talking about what everybody's talking about. This guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and all this stuff. And as if it isn't funny enough, he says, verse 19, what stuff? <laughs> now, just get the picture so we're all clear. They're having a conversation about the very person who's the answer to the questions that they have. He's standing right there, and they don't know it's him. And he says, verse 19, what things? And they say something else, which is they have all this testimony about what happened because a lot of things have happened. And not only that, the women have gone to the tomb has happened. And they say that the body wasn't there has happened. And not only has all that happened, but actually the apostles sent out this kind of I call them a kind of verification brigade. You know, they didn't trust the women who said that there are these angels and there's no body in the tomb. So they went, and sure enough, it was exactly as the women said. So they have all this enormous testimony. They have all the time they spent with Jesus, some three years if they're part of the 70, to, to some extent or other. They have the testimony of the women. Then they have the testimony of the verification committee, the apostles that went to check on the women, and they still don't get it. 
So he's obviously going to do what I would do, which is to say, look, you dunderheads. It's me. He doesn't do that. He's very quiet. He's very cautious. He's very patient. He's very subtle. And they're still talking. Oh, foolish ones, he says, verse 25, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27 has to describe, does it not, one of the greatest Bible studies of all time. I mean, can you imagine being there with Jesus and having him open? And notice the language, please. All the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures concerning himself. So after three years and everything that's happened in Jerusalem and the testimony of the women and the testimony of the verification committee and a Bible study, now they got it. Nope. They still don't have it. And he's, it's the end of the day and he's getting ready to leave. So they say, say, come over to your house for dinner. I don't want to have dinner with these guys. They're terrible. Would you want to have dinner with these guys? They haven't got it the whole time. And he's still patient and he's still gracious and he's still condescending and he's still dealing with them, not on his terms, but on their terms. And they're still talking and they're having a conversation and a meal and all of a sudden he breaks the bread and whether they heard about it from those who were at the, the Last Supper or whether something that he had already done in his ministry, something clicked and they all of a sudden had the scales fall from their eyes and they knew it was him and then everything changed and it all worked back. So the first thing you got to understand is the way that God works is graciously and gradually. You already know this, but I'm just going to remind you of it. The great hymn by Phillips Brooks for Christmas. O little town of Bethlehem has in it a wonderful section where he says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Right? You remember this. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ. It's the quiet God. It's the subtle God. It's the condescending God. It's the gracious God. It's the gradual God. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. One of my favorite writers, Frederick Beekner, has something along this line, which I also want to read. This is in the preface to his book, A Prayer for Owen Meany. Listen to this. Without somehow destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there was no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. Boom. That's it exactly. He's meeting them entirely on their terms. His patience doesn't run out. His condescension doesn't stop. Even after the questions, even after they should have understood, even after all the testimony, even after the Bible study, he keeps going, he keeps going. He is the patient, subtle, gracious God. You all with me? First, gradually and graciously. Second, generically and glancing back. And this is a great story on one of my favorite themes. Because you got to think about it for a second. And you got to think about what this story is actually about. And what's so shocking about it is this. It's about the simplest things imaginable. Listen, it's about a walk. It's about a question. It's about listening. Ooh, there's an idea. Did you notice 
that the person doing the most listening in this story is our Lord? He should have been doing the most talking. It's about a conversation. It's about a walk. Here's a newsflash. You are embodied. You are embodied with a physical body, and you are meant to live with a physical body. And part of being a person who is physical, the way God intends for us to be, is we're meant to walk. You're in a tradition that actually asks you to get up and walk to the communion rail to receive the body and blood of Jesus. And when you do that, you are reminded of the reality of your earthiness and your embodiedness. It is grounding. My hero, C.S. Lewis, took a walk every day. It was reality therapy. So this is about a walk and a question and a conversation, and it's about listening. And oh yes, and there's the last thing. It's about a meal. Little things are not little things, brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God. And as the story goes on, the cumulative impact of each of these little things grows and grows and grows. Never underestimate the importance of little things when you're dealing with Jesus. They all add up until the meal shines the light back on the whole thing and everything's different. So first, it's gracious and it's gradual. Second, it's generic and it's glancing back. And third, it's glorious. And this third one is the hardest one to talk about because it's the most hidden, but in my view, it's the most important. And it's hiding there in verse... I gotta make sure to find it. (laughs) Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. It all hinges on that phrase. You got to read this story and tie it together with one of my favorite stories, the Old Testament, the story of Naaman the Syrian. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to take this down. This is in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman the Syrian is a commander of the Syrian army. He has significant seniority. He's accomplished great things, many great things in his life. He only has one problem. He has leprosy. He's terrible physical health. And he's in his sort of uh, housing complex one day, and there's a maid who's been taken away from the Israelites in one of the raids, and she notices his condition, and she can tell that he wants not to be in that condition anymore. And she says, well, you know, Naaman, there's a prophet named Elisha over in Israel, and if you want to get better, you need just go see him. He'll take care of it. And so he goes nuts. So he writes his king, and he says the, 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 the Israelites have Elisha the prophet. So he gets his king to write a letter, and being a commander, he doesn't understand how any of this works. So he marches down to the king of Israel, another hilarious scene, with the letter from his king, walks into the king of Israel and says, I understand you can heal me of leprosy. Here's my king's letter. Here's our official request. And the king of Israel tears his clothes and says, Am I God? Are you nuts? I'm not involved in the healing business. And all this is going on, this hilarious scene is unfolding with the king, and Elisha, being Elisha, of course, hears about it, and he sends word, and he says, you know, if if Naaman wants to get healed, he should just come to my house. I'll take care of it. So Naaman leaves the king and comes down the road to the prophet of Dothan. And one of my favorite details of the story is Elisha doesn't even come out of his house himself to greet this guy. I mean, it's the height of an insult. He sends his servant out. And he says, all you need to do is wash seven times in the river. And here we go. Here comes the line. And Naaman says, 
but I thought, there it is, but we hoped, but I thought, you see, there he is managing God's will for him. I thought the king would do it. I thought it would work this way. I thought at least the prophet would come out and say, hi, what kind of an operation is this? And his servants prevail upon him. They're the real heroes of the story and say, you know, it's possible this guy might actually be legit. And why don't we just kind of try it? And he can, he's so full of white anger, he barely can calm down. But I thought, you could write epilogues over so much of our lives. We had hoped, but I thought. There we are, managing God's will for him. Now here's the thing you got to get about this, brothers and sisters. When they say, but we thought, what are they doing? They're saying they had, they understood what God was doing. God was going to come to Israel and redeem Israel by overthrowing Rome politically and militarily. They knew what God was going to do. They knew what deliverance looked like. And here it comes. God didn't love them less. He loved them more. They wanted the salvation of Israel on their terms. Jesus gives them the salvation of the world on his terms. C.S. Lewis calls this the intolerable compliment. We keep asking God to love us less God keeps insisting on loving us more. We had hoped. They look for the military and political deliverance of Israel. Jesus gives them a whole much better thing. I made myself look up this week the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. I never get through it without crying. It's just so fantastically magnificent. I won't take you through the whole thing, but I want to read the very end There was a real railway accident, says Aslan, in the last battle, the seventh of the seven books. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ending. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that, listen, were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. By the way, as I go flying by, you do know that, right? That's the thing about those children's stories. It actually is true. They're right. We all will live happily ever after. That's why we love them so much. Dorothy was right. There really is no place like home. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the one great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Boom. There it is, the intolerable compliment. They keep thinking they're getting less. Aslan keeps giving them more. I wrote in my notes this way of articulating it. The best is yet to come in the end. And if this is not the best, this is not the end. Again, the best is yet to come in the end. And if this is not the best, this is not the end. So I give you the grace of God to the slow of heart to believe. Gracious and gradual, generic and glancing back and glorious. And now I go from preaching to meddling and then I'm done. So let me, let, me, let me do some things just for a moment. First of all, it seems to me this calls for what I want to call an attitude of gratitude. And I think I want to put it to you this way. One of my favorite hymns, um, We Rest on Thee, 
our shield and our defender, the third verse says, and needing more each day thy grace to know. And here's the way I want to articulate it to you. I want you to think this morning, I want you to see yourself on the road to Emmaus, and I want you to think about this. Do you have any idea how hard God worked to bring you to himself? Do you have any idea how much work that was? How much condescension was involved? And the question I have for you is this. How grateful are you? I didn't even grow up in a Christian family. How much time do you have? You, you can't even imagine how much work he had to do to get to me. Heaven and earth had to be moved even to get my attention, much less to get me in the kingdom. So there's a, there's a call for us to realize how much work God did to bring us to himself. And when the prayer book says, we bless you for our creation, preservation, all the blessings of this life, but above all for the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ, part of what it means to be a Christian is every day just to stop and say, Lord, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for all the work that you did. Because you see, brothers and sisters, we all have our road to Emmaus. They may look individually different in different ways, but we all have our road to Emmaus. Second, this is an encouragement for you to not underestimate the little things. One of the things I like to talk about sometimes is power. We're in a culture that's very, very confused about real power. And the Bible's very clear, real power does not lie in the places where we think it lies. When I was in Vancouver, the rector of St. John's Shaughnessy was a guy named Harry Robinson, who's another story for another time, one of the great preachers in the Anglican Church of Canada. He's now gone to be with the Lord. He once preached the funeral of a pro very prominent Canadian politician at which I was present. And he said in the middle of his sermon, he said, and I quote, a man is never more powerful than when he's on his knees. And then he was silent for about 20 seconds. It was awesome. And I thought, here are all these politicians throwing their weight around. We vote. We're part of Canadian Parliament. We're big stuff. This guy was one of the biggest of the big. And there's the rector. A man is never more powerful than when he's on his knees. And the question this passage begs us to answer, ask and answer is, do we realize what the really powerful things are that the Lord has called us to do and how powerful they are. One of the most powerful things you do are all these little things. It's, it's just about a walk. It's about a meal. It's about a question. It's about a conversation. It's about listening. It's about sending a thank you note. Please don't estimate the importance, brothers and sisters, of the little things you do. And don't think they don't matter because they are powerful with the Spirit of God behind them. Are you with me? And then lastly... I have to say something, and I want you to be impressed. I made it all the way through the sermon without mentioning the coronavirus, the Ukraine war, or, oh yeah, there was this lawsuit thing that happened this past week. Anybody, anybody notice that? And here's the thing I want to say. Look at the text and think about it. But we had hoped. I'll just speak for myself about the, the South Carolina Supreme Court decision. But I had hoped it was different. It wasn't. Part of living as a Christian is realizing in a fallen world, you don't always get what you expect or what you hope for. But here's the point of this passage in relation to what we're talking about, brothers and sisters. It's a mess, and we don't know fully what's going to happen, including to this parish. But we can be hopeful because we live as Christians in hope, all right? But here's the thing that this passage says to us, which is indispensable. God can redeem Good Friday, therefore... God can redeem anything, including this. 
We have each other and we have the gospel and that's all we need. And that is our future. One conversation I had this week, then I'm done. I called Janet Eccles. I called a lot of people, but I called the people who lost, at least in quotes, in the lawsuit. Janet is the rector of St. Matthew's Fort Mott, which is an amazing parish. If you ever want a great experience, go see it. It just, it literally rises like this scion out of a farm field and just kind of appears. It's actually almost in the geographic center of South Carolina. And uh, they're on the losing side. And I called Janet up. I said, Janet, how can I pray for you? How can I support you? And Janet said, you know, Kendall, on Easter, we, we exceeded our capacity. So the first thing is the building they're in now, they can't fit. That's point one. And she said, Kendall, point two is I got a call from a layman the day after. And he committed uh, the most money of anybody in the history of the parish to me for our future. One day later. One day later. And she said to me, she said, you know, I think we can probably build a building that next time will fit us. <laughs> Boom. Ooh. See, that's the thing about God. He can actually redeem messes even as bad as this. So yes, we will, we will weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But we will pray that God will redeem the mess. And we will believe that the God who redeemed Calvary, who can redeem anything, will redeem this. And in that hope, we will rest. So, brothers and sisters, I give you the grace of God to the slow of heart to believe. The condescending, gracious, patient God. The generically working in small things God. And the glorious God who gives us the intolerable compliment and keeps blessing us more than we can ask or imagine. And our future is always better than our present because further up and further in, we are not yet as happy as he means for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.